everybody. Hi, it's then again with Ken and, and Glenn. Glenn. And we're singing because J.R.R. Tolkien was Professor of Anglo-Saxon. All right, I've, I've run that joke into the ground the first time. But once again, it's, it's another of our series on uh, the Anglo-Saxons. And we always mention because he's incredibly heavily influenced by the Saxon culture. And we're talking about culture today. Absolutely. So and, now we can talk about things like that. And we'll lead off by Tolkien's view on Anglo-Saxon and Germanic culture when he wrote about during the rise of Nazism in Germany. Mm-hmm. And he, he, he oh. said, words to the effect, it's not a direct quote, but he said, I think this war would make me be a better soldier than I was even in the last war because that little corporal has taken something that I dearly love and perverted it into something awful. And he was talking specifically about the Germanic ideals and, and the Germanic Nordic language. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, it's, it's a letter. He says, I have a personal grudge against that little ignoramus. Yeah. <laughs> yes. <laughs> that is what he says. Oh, my goodness, my Anglo-Saxon cup just fell off the table. <laughs> It really did. So you don't know, folks. You, you, and this is part of the culture point. We're doing the culture section. So you know, we, we we assembled here to do our little uh, our podcast. And Glenn like proudly walked in with his Anglo-Saxon cup, and I was drinking my coffee out of a travel mug. And I was like, "Oh, you got your cup!" And I said, "I should have one." And then I ran over, you know, twenty feet to what we call the history cage, That's right. where I keep the things. And I was like, "Oh, which Anglo-Saxon cup? I have." Five different yes. kinds. I was afraid to bring all mine because they'll break. <laughs> but you know, <laughs> you know, I'm about to go on just a side material culture thing about the different cups because this is actually a great object lesson right here. But what were we saying before I went on this tangent? <laughs> oh, Hitler. Yeah. So, uh, <laughs> so, 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 yeah. So, so, yeah, so, 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 so Tolkien has a very personal grudge to- against yes, him. Yes, Tolkien. Tolkien hated because that because he so much of what Tolkien wrote was th- this this high Nordic. Culture: the Anglo-Saxons, the, the Germans, the Scandinavians, the the Swedes, the Norwegians, the Iceland- the Icelandic sagas, the, the the Danes. You know, he he was steeped in that literature and that culture. Uh, and and quite frankly, that stigma has stuck around even right. low until this present. Right, day. And, it, and it's what Tolkien feared because he he wrote, you know, we're not going to be able to use the word Nordic anymore, and, and and because Nordic has a very specific, you know, linguistic meaning and and you right. know societal meaning, and now it's been perverted to this racial thing. And Tolkien was like, that's not what it is. Well, even and, yeah. and the word Aryan, Tol- Tolkien actually wrote to, uh, I guess it was some publisher or something, where. Oh, I forget what it was, what, what the occasion of the letter was, but basically he was saying, you do realize that Aryan is not a term, right? <laughs> you know, exactly. That it, that it has an and, incredibly limited meaning to academics yes. and nothing and else. When, you know, and and when if you're walking down the street and you hear Ken and Glenn walk the other direction and one of them says the other, proud Germanic culture, you may think, oh, those, they're neo-Nazis. Yeah, exactly, because no. we're not. I assure you, and yet, <laughs> just because of us being, we're talking about Anglo-Saxons, but because you hear that, thanks to Hitler and his boys, yeah. it's 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 sort of stigmatized it. But academia and folks are trying to to bring it to back rehabilitate to that the brink. terms exactly to what they originally meant because the culture was incredibly rich. As exactly. we've already talked about the hearth connections, and and that's mm-hmm. one of the great things about having these cups here with us today. We um, have to get a little bit of take a, take a photo of these and like put them on the on the website. Oh, oh she's she, so she smart. Did. Because yeah, because because Glenn, because Glenn and I, let's see, uh, you, you'll see this in the photo. But like, say the two, these two cups here, they are fairly similar in shape, but completely different glaze patterns and colors. Yet they're both absolutely, you know, relevant to the same period. And then, boom, here is a cup carved out of horn. All three of these cups 
are absolutely and, fine. And the cool little bowl. And the cool little bowl that you would drink out of. And you, if you want to see some, you want to see someone from tenth century, eleventh century Anglo-Saxon Britain drinking out of out of a bowl. Look at the tapestry, and there's this section where they're feasting after uh, William has landed. This guy's got this. This bowl is holding his palm towards his it's face. It's such a dainty holding it's of the incre- bowl. And this guy's a warrior. And it's just incredible. <laughs> it's so funny. But anyway, the material culture, you know, that's a good place to start since everything is informed by the material culture, exactly. says David French. <laughs> Are you listening, David? <laughs> so, you know, we talked about the material culture, you know, on display with Raidwald's tomb at, at Sutton Hoo. And using that as a springboard as we go through the ages, through the eight the eight nine hundreds, the British Isles, Anglo-Saxon England, is renowned for the craftsmanship. There are a variety of websites and heaven help us books <laughs> that you can take a look at that have just remarkable archaeological, not even archaeological finds. Some of them are still have been accent, passed down. They're right. they're in churches and, and things like that. And they are, you know, they're they're such an interesting culture. They did not do a lot of building in stone. Right. They built almost almost exclusively in wood. And and so, oh, they're primitive, they can't work in stone. But when you look at some of their silver work and their gold work, yeah. And the and the and the fine metal work that they could do, they surpass almost everyone in Europe at that time. Yeah. Well that that one that brooch that has the inscription uh, Alfred. The made, Alfred Jewel. The Alfred yes. Jewel. Holy moly. It's yeah, you you look at that. These aren't primitive people. Had they chosen to build in stone, they could have. They didn't. They, they didn't. And, you know, and, and certainly stone is available in England, but you know what there's a lot more of that's easier to get? Wood. A lot. And, <laughs> and, and, and see, the Anglo-Saxons especially, going yep. along with that fatalistic view that they have of the world, if you couple that, imagine this. Imagine you live in a land where the ruins of a society are all around you. Yeah, the Romans. And, and, and the ruin, yeah, the Roman, the Roman ruins. And right. the ruins are there, and you see them every day, and you realize that long ago there was a culture here that's better than you. Yeah. And that could accomplish far greater things than you, and you're sort of the leftover. And those ruins are there, and they kind of harken back to a mysterious and sort of looking over your shoulder time. And the Anglo-Saxons in England are surrounded by this all the time. Well, and, and not just the Roman ruins, the older Neolithic ruins. Yes, Stonehenge, Avebury, yes. uh, uh, you know, there's, there's those things too. And so, and so yeah, they're, they're surrounded by the reminders of their past in a way that Americans, at least, usually aren't. Yeah. Because we tear our history down, man. Right. Um, <laughs> but, but, you know, and they're surrounded by this, and yet they still they flourish. They're, a, they're very much a seafaring people. They are... Great at trade again across that North Sea. Mm-hmm. They have an incredibly complex governmental and political system and economic system, and they have a variety of social classes. Like you know, the lowest class that you could have was a curl, which <laughs> we get the word churl from, and you've you've heard the word right. churlish, uh, and oral and yarl. Mm-hmm. Well, yarl Scandinavian, yeah. which brings but, it to but another it com- point. But it comes in and, because. And, yeah, because at in the in when the Vikings begin their invasions around 700 AD. Yeah, seven seven the 790s is when uh, that raid at Lindisfarne yes, is first yes. recorded. You're, yeah. Yes, yes, yeah, you're yeah. right. So so 790s, the Viking incursions into Anglo-Saxon England begin, and those go on for several several decades, and they fundamentally shift mm-hmm. the culture because the culture becomes less insular in terms of the British Isles, and they begin just like they had with these Saxon invasions before, right? Angles, Jutes, and Saxons invasions. Right. 
that Scandinavian culture starts right. to come in because the Scandinavians say, why are we going back and forth raiding every year when right. we can just set we up a just, village We can stay. overwinter. And st- exactly. We can stay, then we start taking over our land. And, and I we- think we've touched on this when we talked about Vikings and pirates before. Exactly. But, but this, is, this is the bigger exploration. It's like, it's like yeah, this is, this is fertile farming land that's, that's set up for business already. Right. And, and honestly, because the Anglo-Saxons are good at what they do. So by the time you get to the 850s, 860s, Anglo-Saxon isn't really the best word. It really is an Anglo-Scandinavian Absolutely. culture. Because of those invasions from Scandinavia, their culture, their trade, yeah. their worldview has been pulled not towards the continent, not towards, towards, not towards the old Germanic areas, but towards Scandinavia. Right, towards what is modern-day Norway, Sweden Denmark, and, and Denmark, yeah, yeah you know, that's that's what the exactly that's what the orientation is towards, and and you know we mentioned Alfred the Great in one of our previous two Anglo-Saxon uh, podcasts, and it's really him who once again this is such it's it's so many threads that things hang by, you know when when Alfred is at his lowest when the Anglo-Saxon kingdoms are under heavy pressure, I mean it, it looks like Anglo-Saxon England is about to end. And it's about to be Scandinavian. Northumbria fell first. Exactly. And then Mercia goes. Yeah, and, and you know, Alfred is, is hiding in the fens of, of, of Sussex. It looks grim, and then, but he, he hangs on, makes his counterattacks, surprise attacks, builds it back up, basically fights to a working standstill where he's got half, let's say, half the country. They've got half the country. It's like, okay, fine. But at least this half is well, united exactly. under one king. We'll deal with y'all later. And then his sons and grandsons going to deal with them very well. Exactly, under the House of Wessex. Under and, the you know, House of and, Wessex. And uh, Athelstane. I'm Athelstane. sorry, his, his grandson Athelstane yeah. also should probably be called the Great. Yeah. Because he is the, one, the one who one. ended up pushing the, the Scandinavians pretty much to the coast yeah. and creating a truly unified England under the House of Wessex right. and sets up the dynasty that doesn't end until 1066. Right. And I mean, more or less. Yeah, but no, less. you're right. But but that also sets up a, this flowering that we see in the late 800s and 900s that's, you know, let's say— That's 80, that restoration. That, it's that, from, right, it's from an 80, 80 yeah. 90 year period where it's like, once again, it's like, all right, this is really working. And then, of course, you know— the, the Normans. Well, well, no, the, no. the, the 990s when the Viking oh, yes. raids renew, oh, yes. and this time it works. This time Canute does see he is king of England. Right. And, and, and that's the thing that when you, when you talk about this culture and society, you know, in Alfred's time it's divided between Ingolanda and then the Danelaw, the, the Danelaw. area under control. But once again, these two cultures are very similar. Their languages are very similar. Some of their words are the, you know, Horsa means horse in Anglo-Saxon right. and Old Norwegian. You know, Kanig means king in both languages. Skirt. There, yeah, there, that, there, there, are, there are a lot of things that are very similar. So that, so that is what would have made an Anglo-Scandinavian empire viable. And that's the, what Canute was wanting. And that do. is exactly. And if he had just had two stronger sons, it would have. But, <laughs> well, I mean, literally. Yeah. There's two very ineffectual sons. But, of course, it's then, then 1066, and then you've got the Norman conquest coming in. Once again, how, how much of the culture survives? Well, we've already talked about the language ultimately triumphs because England, we're not speaking Norman French right now. Exactly. We're speaking yes. English. Yes. The English language survives, which means the English people, who are the majority speakers of it, really ultimately has the upper right. hand over these Norman it, it's invaders. It's still called England. And it's still called England. Not Normandy, part D. Part <laughs> D, exactly. <laughs> and that's, you know, that's an important thing to remember, too, is, is long ago... 
scholars looked at the Norman Conquest and saw it as a very strict dividing line. 1066, everything was Anglo-Saxon before that. And then suddenly everything was Norman. And (laughs) yeah, that's just not that Anglo-Saxon culture, language continued for depending on how one wants to argue it. And Tolkien was one of those that argued this maybe a couple of centuries. Right. The linguistic parts were still there because again, the Normans come in, they're the ruling elite, and they and they more or less take over the church as well. Yeah. Or at least the leadership of the church in England. But the culture remains and, and the you know, the culture is much like ours. The, the, it, was, it was patriarchal. The, the men were right. head of household. The division of labor was very much what you would imagine. The, the men were in charge of the, the farming and the agriculture, and the women were domestic. And Anglo, uh, Anglo-Saxon England did have a form of slavery. But separate from your mind, American 19th century slavery, different kind of slavery, but there were people who were bound uh, to a family, whether they had been captured or purchased by, the way, by word, pirates. Right, right. Uh, uh, yeah, and, and the Norwegians and the, Scan- the Scandinavians brought a lot of those in, and that's, they were getting them from these Slavic lands, you know, Eastern Europe. That's why we get the word slave, Slav. What? Yeah, who knew? Wow. Uh, anyway, but, you know, talking a little bit more about the culture, and, the, and you know, we've talked about some of the, the literature and the works of art, it, there's a really, of course, final grand irony in that, that lovely fabric and textile record of the Battle of Hastings and the Norman Conquest, what is called the Bayou Tapestry, but is in reality an embroidery, not a tapestry. Because uh, <laughs> uh, a tapestry is a large wall hanging, and this is not a large wall hanging. It's a very long, narrow piece of cloth with things embroidered on it. A tapestry, it's woven into, but now we're getting to things. But anyway... It's the work of, most likely, English artisans. Because the English were renowned for their, for their, for their, their textile work. Yeah, the textile work. So, so that's yet another thing that's, you know, even, even in defeat, you know, when we go to commission, you know, the thing to commemorate this victory, well, let's get the English to show it. They're really good at that. Yeah. Yeah, but didn't, do you think they'll be upset because we beat them and now we're, who cares? We beat them. They have to sew it. <laughs> Here's some money. Well, well, yeah. And, and uh, there's pretty good evidence that it was, uh, well, depending on which book you read, but there's, <laughs> there's, there's some consensus. There are a, a sizable faction that says that the nunnery near, uh, near Canterbury itself is where this the primary work was, was done. Primary yeah. was done, you know, and so, you know, but it's, it's very cool that even the lettering and the wording in the Latin, because it is in Latin, the inscriptions on the embroidery are in Latin, but they're an Angli- an Anglican, uh, yes. Anglicized Latin. Exactly. So it, it's very interesting that this this thing that is considered this is the icon of the of the conquest uh, is actually done by English people. <laughs> and 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 that and that great break in 1066 that wasn't a break was for so long seen as the awful thing that happened to perfect England. Every, yeah. Everyone was free. Yeah. Everyone was equal. Yeah. You elected your king, which was not the case. Oh. And with that break. That was a very popular view in the 18th century, and folks, let me tell ah, you how. You let yes. me tell you how close we all are to speaking Anglo-Saxon because it was put <laughs> forth by none other than Mr. J. Thomas Jefferson, who wanted to go back to. Remember, the, the American independence movement created something in the raw. We were in a state of nature, and he saw that this is this is a. <laughs> Opportunity to Golden make the chance. world anew. So yes. his proposal, because only Thomas Jefferson could make this proposal, <laughs> was that the great seal of the United States would number one have Hingston Horsa, the two Anglo-Saxon the two Anglo-Saxon people who quote founded Anglo-Saxon England, that would be on the seal, 
and schools would begin teaching Anglo-Saxon <laughs> so that within a generation or two, the language of the United States would be Anglo-Saxon. And we wouldn't have to deal with this modern English, Norman, with, with all its French, French Norman, French influences. We would exactly. be as, as pure and free and democratic as anything, and according in, to uh, Jefferson, in history ever was. And in, uh, oh, suddenly it leapt from my mind. One of the treaties he wrote just before the Revolution, uh, notes on the that's in the state of Virginia. Virginia yeah, right. Yes. Right. He he talks about you know forms of government, and he says quite explicitly, and we should hearken back to the Anglo-Saxon form of government where the people were directly directly related uh, elected, and there was this chain. He just he was enamored of it. So there's a huge cultural imprint on this guy who you know becomes one of our presidents and one of our most renowned founders. And of course, there are other influences like our good old boy J.R.R. Tolkien. Was just absolutely stamped with the with the influence of Anglo-Saxon culture. If you if you read, and I do recommend you read the Lord of the Rings, <laughs> in addition to watching the movie, and do watch the movie. But the writers of Rohan, that culture is Anglo-Saxon plus horses. Yes, Anglo-Saxon plus horse equals Rohan. Now, now, <laughs> not to go off topic, but we're going to for just one minute, Libba, just one minute. Uh, then we promise we'll stop talking. Many, I, I got into Libba it. Libba says, I'll stop recording. You can keep yeah, talking. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I got into a, let's call it a discussion with someone. Okay, we'll call I it. I was up late one night because someone on the internet was wrong. Oh, no! And you had to address that. I, I had to, and, and we... This very question that you and I have talked about, how the writers of Rohan are Anglo-Saxons with horses. And someone pointed me to a letter that Tolkien had wrote that said, well, that wasn't the intent at all. They're not really Anglo-Saxon. And I went and looked in my collection of letters, and lo, there the letter was. And I was like, this this can't be, because it's not just the movie that makes them look right. like English. It's, it's the book. And so I, I had to dig in deeper and deeper, and I saw some other literary criticism that unfortunately has come to the conclusion of there's two versions of that. Number one is Tolkien was just trying to not, he was misleading us, trying yes. to keep the secrets of his writing to himself. Right. And also, it was a misunderstanding because what he meant was the Rohirrim were not Anglo-Saxon linguistically. Yes. Because that's, of course, it's Tolkien, that's what he's that's focusing exactly, on. That's exactly, exactly. They're not, oh, no, 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 you, they're not remotely Anglo-Saxon because he's invented six different languages for his books. And he's right. like, no, when I invented the language of Rohan, right. it wasn't Anglo-Saxon at all. Now, they when do have go, meat halls, they do have po- bards halls, and poets. and They've got their helmets, have boars on, their, <laughs> on a, their crest. I mean, that's just coincidence. <laughs> sure. <laughs> but for all you Tolkien nerds out there right. who have been listening to us, we firmly believe yes. that, that they are Anglo-Saxon, yeah. even though his letter seems to indicate not... But it could be qualified could, and be talking about language. Right, right, right. Man, that was a tangent. <laughs> yes, it was. And, and I guess on that tangent, we should probably say farewell to the Anglo-Saxons for now. For now. Then Again with Ken and Glenn is a production of the Cottrell Digital Studio at the Northeast Georgia History Center. If you've enjoyed listening to Then Again with Ken and Glenn, please make sure that you subscribe and help us out by writing a review. To learn more about the Northeast Georgia History Center, visit www.negahc.org.